Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. But before we get to that, I just want to quickly say congratulations to Tay and Rob. Their six-year anniversary was yesterday. So congratulations. So, very cool. All right. God's Word this morning to us. We continue in our series uh, of Jesus' message to seven churches Uh, in the ancient world towards the end of the first century. We come to church number five out of the seven, the church in Sardis. This is a tough one. God's got something to say to us as well. Don't get too discouraged. We'll get there, all right? Here's God's message to us today. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding, from the work of your Spirit teaching us and instructing us, God. I pray for each of us gathered here in this place, in these moments, that your Spirit will work to bring afresh your Word. What is the message that each of us as individuals need to hear, but what is the message we as a church need to hear as well? Lord, for those watching online, those who will watch at a later date, I already know that in that preordained by you moment, I ask for your Spirit to work, to bring to bear on every life your Word, your truth. Lord, may we all repent. May we all wake up. May we all completely give ourselves to serving you in this world because time is precious and short. Father God, I ask no matter where we may be in relationship to faith, I pray for you to work. For those who disbelieve, bring words of truth, words of correction and conviction to believe. Lord, for those who doubt, words of assurance and strengthening, encouragement. Lord, for those who are discouraged, Lord, I pray for comfort. I pray for a fresh work of your Spirit to bring peace and hope to the heart. And those, Lord, for those of us who are already dedicated I pray that we will not only strengthen what remains, but we will press on and that our works will glorify you 
and be finished in your opinion and in your sight, not ours. As always, Lord God, I ask for my words, my weaknesses, to not get in the way of your word. But may you speak, may you work, may you bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up, and it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I did want to say a special welcome to a few who are joining with us online today. Uh, first off, a very special welcome and hello to Robert and his mom, uh, Shirley, who are watching us this morning uh, from a recovery room at Stanford uh, University, Stanford Medical. Uh, very successful surgery for Robert this week. We're praising God for that and praying for continued recovery. And Robert, we will uh, see you soon. And Shirley, look forward to meeting you face-to-face. I also want to say hello to Charlie and Margaret, who are home today as Margaret's are recovering from a little bit of a boo-boo, uh, and she's got some, uh, some healing to do, but we're missing, uh, missing uh, Charlie and Margaret as well. And then lastly, um, today I do want us to stop for a few moments and pray as a church family uh, for one of our beloved members, Patsy Hobson. Patsy is here today. Patsy recently got a very dire uh, diagnosis uh, medically, and um, from the doctor's perspective, from the earthly perspective, I said it's it's dire, it's not looking good, and uh, but we know all things are in the Lord's hands. So let's take a few moments and pray for Patsy. She has another uh, very important follow up with the doctor this week. So would you please pray with me, Father God? We know that at the end of the day, our lives. Our physical lives, our soul is in your hands. Our days are ordained for us by you, not our own hand. It's not circumstances, it's not happenstance, Lord, but you direct these things. And Lord, now as Patsy deals with very, um, very frightening news on the one hand, Lord, I pray for her in these moments, and for us as a church family to surround her so that her love for you, her trust for you, her confidence in you will grow even more and more. Your, your, your word says from the Apostle Paul that outwardly we're wasting away. And that's the case of all of us in this, in, in this encasement of our soul. But inwardly, we are being renewed day by day by the power of your spirit. I'm praying that for Patsy. Lord, I pray that as she goes through these next steps under your guidance and under your hand. Lord, we ask for a miraculous healing. We ask for all of the, 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 the cancer in her body to be taken away. But Lord, in alignment with your will, your timing, your goodness, and your grace, we pray that if that is not the case, we pray for Patsy's faith to be strong. We pray for our love for her to be constant and uplifting, surrounding her with prayers and love and support. Lord, I pray in this time your spirit will speak directly into Patsy's life to assure her and to give her confidence of her life in you. And Lord, help all of us as we struggle with disheartening news. But in all things, may your grace be sufficient. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.
Well, we come to church number five, the church in the city of Sardis. Tough words. Jesus does not have a lot of good things to say. His praise is about as minimal as you can get. Sardis was a pretty interesting city, and there's a lot of background on the city that ties into what Jesus has to say. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. That was the status of the city. The city, by the time that John writes Jesus' words to the church at near the end of the first century, around A.D. 90 to 95 maybe, the glory days of this once just impressive, impressive and important city, they were far in the past. They were long gone. It was still a vibrant center of commerce, and it was situated at a number of crossroads. It kind of served as the hub between all the inland cities and then all the coastal territories. So it was a stopover. It was a layover point. Lots of businesses. Probably a little bit more upscale, like Kettleman City. No, I'm just kidding. It was nothing, no comparison there whatsoever. It didn't have an in and out. So I don't know why you would go to Sardis in the first place. But it was, a, it, was, it was a city with a very rich history, both in terms metaphorically and in terms of literally very, very rich. It, in ancient history, it served as the capital of one of the wealthiest kingdoms of the ancient world, the Lydian Empire. It was the cornerstone, it was the capital, it was the centerpiece of this fabulously wealthy, exorbitantly wealthy kingdom that existed for almost a thousand years. The last king, King Croesus, was one of the wealthiest rulers in all of human history. He oversaw a gleaming empire that Sardis was the capital of. It was fueled in part by a huge abundance of gold in the nearby river. And that, that gold was mined and it was used to create immense wealth. In fact, the Lydian Empire was the very first people to use gold and silver coins as money. So all of our, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil begins with these people. No, it doesn't. There was money. Money was long before that. But they were the first to use gold and silver coins in exchange for trade and goods and commerce. It was a fertile valley. In, in the sheep industry, you know, uh, shepherds were, 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 were numerous. There was lots of sheep and as such. The center, uh, it was, became a center of like the wool and garments trade. So the claws and the clothing manufacturing in that area was, was well known. That's what it was, what it was the center of, along with just the business of all the travelers and things like that. The city itself was built on a nearly, uh, unscalable mountain. The, 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 the Acropolis of Sardis was considered unconquerable because it was so well fortified and so well defended. But twice in history, it had actually more than twice, but there was two big events where this, this, this almost impregnable fortress of a city was conquered. Not by invading armies that just surrounded it and overwhelmed it and, and defeated those, those men who were defending the city. No, it fell because there was a secret tunnel that brought water into the city. It was hidden. 
And so it was not very well guarded. In one of the first instances, the surrounding empire of Cyrus the Great was there besieging the city. They were getting nowhere in their their siege of the city of Sardis. Until one night, unfortunately, a Sardinian or a Sardian soldier dropped his hat or dropped his helmet down into the tunnel. That made noise. That alerted some scouts from Cyrus the Great. They found the back entrance, the secret entrance into the city. And their forces began to go in that way. And they, they, they came into the city and defeated it from within. The, the city's arrogance and smugness, the, 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 the idea that it was, you know, it was impregnable, it fell from within. 400, oh, 300 and some years later, the exact same thing happened. With the, without the exception of the, of the soldier dropping his helmet. Another invading army, Antiochus the Great, found the entrance and, and infiltrated the city and defeated it from within. The empire was never to be the same. The arrogance that led to its defeat was legendary. In fact, in the ancient world, prior to that, the saying was that to, to defeat, to overthrow the Acropolis of Sardis was slaying for doing that which is impossible. It's amazing how sometimes the, the impossible is possible. After that point, the city declined in importance and it was kind of bypassed by things. Then in AD 17, while Jesus was alive, and while he was a young man, a huge earthquake hit that area, and the city of Sardis was basically destroyed. That in the city of Philadelphia, which we'll look at next as well. The Roman emperor Tiberius, because of the historic importance of the city, donated millions of dollars to rebuilding the city. The citizens basically leveled it in these, these immense, immaculate buildings and temples that had once been there replaced on a much smaller scale. Tiberius withheld, he suspended taxes from that city for five years so the city could rebuild. And of course, it included a temple to Tiberius as part of the rebuilding and even at this point, 60 to 70 to 80 years later, the city had recovered. It was built back up. The commerce was bustling and it was important, but it was just a shell. It was a mere shadow of its former self. Its reputation was great. The reality, not so much. We know virtually nothing about the church there its founding is not recorded in Scripture. It was probably founded about the same time as many of the other churches on this list. It appears nowhere else in the Bible. It does appear a little bit later in church history, though. Even though Jesus' words are so piercing and so harsh and so condemnatory, the church must have taken what Jesus says to heart because not too many years later after this was written, the church was vibrant. The church was thriving. The church was actually the, the, the center of the church in that area in the middle of the second century. 
under the leadership of the highly esteemed Bishop Melito. It was a highly regarded, highly influential church in the region. A church that truly did wake up and repent and, in, and enjoyed many years of the Lord's blessing and work. That was about 60 years after it was written. The church was vibrant and healthy and thriving and strong. So let's get into the actual message that Jesus has for this church. Jesus has virtually nothing good to say from this church. There is no commendation, as like with the other churches. He says, I know your deeds. He said that to other churches. I know your deeds. I know how you, 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 you love one another. I know how you're serving. Here he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. It's all smoke and mirrors. It all looks good on the outside. In, in the words of Jesus, as he said to the Pharisees, he goes, you are whitewashed tombs on the outside. You look good. You're painted nicely. You're decorated nicely. From all appearances, everything is great. But inside, you're rotting. You're a, you, you, you have a dead corpse and all that goes with that decay inside. The words of Jesus are very harsh. This is the second harshest letter. The, the, the harshest is the one we end with, Laodicea. That'll happen on August 13th, by the way. A few weeks, but you'll, we'll figure that out. The message to Laodicea is the harshest. The message to Sardis is the second harshest. And this is a little bit different. The previous churches, they had had external threats. They had had emperor worship or idolatry. They had been attacked by, by the, the Jews and the Jewish, uh, Jewish hardline Jewish believers who were fighting against the new Christian sect. That's not the case in Sardis. There's no external threat. There's no idolatry. There's no force of emperor worship and, and being, being um, implied or impressed upon the people. There doesn't even seem to be an internal threat. Some of the other churches had false teachers who were leading people astray. They were teaching false doctrine, and they were corrupting the church from within. Sardis doesn't seem to have one of those false prophets or those false teachers. Instead, it's the congregation as a whole, save for a few, that were just missing the point. The contagion within the congregation seemed to be basically this. Valuing the praise of men over the praise of God. Perhaps it was smugness and arrogance. You see, they had a reputation. They were well-known. They were highly regarded. It was an active, vibrant church. There was lots of programs and activities and acts of love. There was lots of things going on. But Jesus evaluated those works, those deeds, those actions, and he found them lacking. Not in the service that was getting done, but perhaps it was in the motivation. Perhaps they were a church that was very active, but they were just going through the motions. Maybe they had some important traditions some important community service projects or, or community endeavors that they did that they just had to keep doing because, well, that's what we've always done as a church. 
the deadliest sentence forever in any church. We've always done it that way before. Jesus does not specify exactly how their works are dead, but he says, your deeds, your good works, they are dead to me and to my Father. In the old days when I was in Bible college and seminary, the old days of the 80s and the 90s, those glorious times some of us may remember, so much, of, so much of pastoral training or so much of ministry emphasis, if you were going to be a successful pastor, if you were going to be a dynamic church, it was as simple as A, B, C, D. Attendance, buildings, cash, decisions. That was it. The A, B, C, Ds. If you had a growing attendance, you're automatically a successful church. Looking back, There's a lot of cults that grow with a lot of people. There's a lot of people who attend very disgusting, satanic things under the guise of entertainment. Maybe attendance isn't always the greatest marker. Buildings. If you were building buildings, if you had a building campaign, if you were, if you were breaking ground, if you were uh, launching into something new and, and constructing a building, you were considered a successful church, a successful pastor. That was before land and building in California became ridiculously expensive, obviously. Attendance, buildings, and cash. Woo, what are those weekly offerings? How much is the per capita giving? You know, how much is, your, how much is your, your, your cash reserves? That was a marker of a successful church. When I got to town almost 17 years ago, there was a local church of about 70 people. I'm not going to tattle on it too much. I'm not going to say the name. I'm not going to say the location because we could hit it with a rock. <clears throat> but back then... I met the pastor of that church. It was a church of about 70 in attendance. They had half a million dollars. We need to edit this part out of the video, by the way, Bill. You got that? (laughs) This is an illustration for this group only. Those online, check in later. I'll tell you the story. When I got to town 17 years ago, this church met the pastor. They had half a million dollars in the bank for a church of about 70 people on a Sunday morning. A couple, three years later, that church, that 500,000 was gone, and that church we know subsequently got taken over by a different group, and this has been hullabaloo and chaos ever since then. Attendance, buildings, cash, the sign of a successful, vibrant, thriving, Holy Spirit-led, God-blessed church, and then decisions. How many people are praying for salvation? How many people are coming forward? How many people are getting baptized? Those can be very important markers. But in those days, that's what a successful church was. Thankfully, we have matured, evolved. I think the Holy Spirit has done a work at least on, um, among those Christians, those pastors, those theologians who, who honor the Scriptures and want to have a, a vibrant church. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was all about the church growth movement. 
How can you attract people? How can you get massive crowds? How can you build, build, build buildings? How can you create all this excitement? How could you wine and dine them and woo people in to your brand, your place, your, your worship center, all those kinds of things? As I reflected in a, in a social media post of mine earlier this week, I reflected if only the church growth movement of the 80s and 90s had instead been a church health movement. We wouldn't be seeing the fallout that we're seeing today uh, of people supposedly abandoning the Christian faith. It's called deconstruction. But so many of the stories I read about of those who deconstruct their faith, their faith was never constructed on Jesus in the first place. It was constructed on great music and exciting programs and helpful Bible studies and practical felt met needs for a season. And those, I'm not condemning those things. God used those in a lot of ways, but so many people who are now, who are now deconstructing their faith never constructed a faith on Jesus and the scriptures in the first place. They constructed a faith on a Christian subculture that was created. But nowadays, nowadays the buzzwords are not ABCDs anymore. And we're still working through things as church leaders across the country and across the West. But now it's much more things. It's like, it's like engagement. Engagement in the scriptures. Engagement in service. Now it's the talk of being missional. Or, or discipling, or being discipled, or being a disciple maker. It, it's about focusing on getting the teachings of Jesus to actually be embraced and applied in people's lives, regardless of the attendance, the buildings, the cash. Yeah, we're still pushing for decisions. But a decision to pray, a decision to get baptized, a decision to accept Christ, a decision to become a church member is not the end-all, be-all. The decision needs to be to become a disciple of Jesus, to surrender to his lordship, to give heart, mind, body, and soul to Jesus, and to have allegiance to him only and to serve him only. That is the mark of a healthy, vibrant church, a congregation of disciples, people looking to Jesus to learn how to live how to think, how to love. The church in Sardis had plenty of activity, plenty of life, plenty of vibrancy. But Jesus' words cut right through all the fluff, all the style, and went right to the substance. There's a call to repentance. Five imperatives Jesus gives to this church First off, wake up. Wake up. Smell the coffee. And as Christians, smell the bacon. There's a great meme on social media right now. It says that scientists and, and, and researchers have finally shown that the explosive growth of, of the church in the first century was directly related to the church being allowed to eat bacon compared to the Hebrew dietary restrictions. Oh, that's evangelism. But Jesus' message is wake up. 
You see, they were, they, were, they were wide awake in their activities. There was so much going on. But Jesus says, wake up and truly see what's going on. Hear from the Spirit. Don't just see with your eyes. Look deeper. Look within. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. It means there's something remaining. And you need to honestly assess. We need to honestly assess. What are we doing right? What are we getting right? Let's make that stronger and build from there. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and heard. Remember in the first century, the the Christians, individual Christians, did not have copies of the Scriptures. The scriptural teaching was oral. There were some... It was through oral teaching. There were some copies of some of the books and portions of the letters and things like that. They would be read at the church. The, the, the Bible that early churches had was the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. They had those, but so there's, there's, it wasn't remember and go read for yourselves. It wasn't remember and go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Go back and read Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. It wasn't that. It was remember what you have received, what you have heard about Jesus. Remember. We have got to go back to the Gospel again and again and again and again and again. The Gospel is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hold fast to the gospel that Christ, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus for our forgiveness, for our new life. That is the essence of the gospel. The only way to truly move forward in faith is to continually look back to the cross and the resurrection and build upon them our identity as individual followers and as a church family. It is to look to the cross and the resurrection to find our purpose in life. It is the cross and the resurrection that is to guide our decision-making. We are not autonomous. A disciple is one under the authority of Jesus, so we look to him before we make decisions impacting our lives, careers and, and homes and residences and relationships and all of those things. We look to Jesus first because... He died for us on the cross and he rose from the grave. He is Lord. The cross and the resurrection empower our service of Jesus. It's not just to do good stuff or to feel good about ourselves and to, 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 to have a good reputation in the community. It was because Jesus served us that we serve others. Jesus sacrificed for us so we sacrifice for others to help bring them to Jesus, not just a church or an event. 
It is the cross and the resurrection that we look back to that gives us hope for facing the difficulties we face with our physical bodies, in our relationships, in our spiritual struggles with the spirit being willing and the flesh being weak. We go back to the cross and the resurrection becomes the foundation. It becomes the focal point for everything of who we are and how we live. It's the centerpiece of our hope. Because if Jesus went through that for us, we can go through anything for him. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received from Jesus, what you have heard, the teachings that's been passed on to you, and hold it fast. Pastoral confession time. It was getting late on Friday. I couldn't figure out how to put this into words. So you have a nice line for filling in the blank. I said, I'm going to use this weekend to let the Holy Spirit do a work and, and show me something on how to make this point. I couldn't illustrate. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out a, the right words to put it in. And Dottie had a hot date with Bill, so they had to get going. And so I left it blank. And so this is what I think I got from the Holy Spirit. So if it works, we give the Spirit praise. If it completely stinks, it's all my fault for, for not being articulate enough. To hold hold. Hold it fast means to observe. It means to keep watching. It means to pay attention to. It means to value, to cherish. It means just to be, be conscientious in observing. Observing what you've received and, and what you've heard about Jesus. But all of us are different in how we cherish things, how we value and deem something important to us spiritually. So what is it for you? Is it, is it just filling your mind with, with, with praise and worship music? Is it diving into the scriptures for yourself? Is it listening to podcasts on the Bible or on theology or on the Christian life? Is it delving into a dedicated prayer life? Or is it humbly serving and sacrificing? Is it, whatever it is, what is it for you? on how you can hold it fast, what you have received from Jesus. Personalize it. How do you cherish what Jesus has done to you and write it in there, in your daily life? Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you have received and heard, hold it fast, and repent. Repent means simply to change your mind and change direction. Change your actions if the activities are dead in themselves, let's do something different. If what we're doing to get by spiritually isn't working, let's change it up. Let's realize that. Let's dive in deeper to the scriptures or, 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 or more devotedly to prayer or whatever it is. Repent. Because those five imperatives have three warnings. What remains is about to die. If you're not growing, you're stagnating. If you're stagnating, you're declining. If you're declining, you're dying. It's a vicious cycle. But remember the immortal words of the best or the second best movie in all of history. Mostly dead is not dead dead. All hail the princess bride. 
what remains is about to die, but it's not dead yet. As long as there's something there we can work with, the Spirit can work with, the Spirit can rejuvenate and and bring new life into this church whose reputation is great but whose works are dead. Jesus says, I have found your deeds unfinished. I wish he would have explained that a little bit more. But he says they're just unfinished. They're not complete. We've got to remember in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork, his craftsmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The completeness probably doesn't mean that the good deeds themselves were ineffectual or that they were only half-hearted. It just means that Jesus was calling this church to be able to do more and do something substantially more with their energy and and their passion for service. The, the, The deeds were missing the mark. And we've got to remember that even in our own lives, he who began a good work will you will carry on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We've got work to do to serve the Lord. And when God is done with us, then we are done. Done, done. (laughs) Then the words, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Elsewhere in Scripture, this is a reference to Jesus' final return, the the end of time when when Jesus comes down through the clouds. He he descends from heaven, and time will be no more. The new heaven and the new earth await. This is not a reference to that. This is a reference probably echoing his earlier warning that he would come and remove the lampstand of the church, that, that symbol of the church's power and the purpose, their place in the community as a witness to God's people. Jesus says, I will come as a thief in the night, which hearkens back to those enemy soldiers that came in secretly through the unknown tunnel, the unguarded, undefended tunnel, and surprised the impregnable city and defeated them. That's what the illusion echoes. And then there is promise. Because see, there's a few Even in the church, as active and as vibrant, as dynamic as Sardis was, so many people were missing the point. They were off target. Perhaps their their enthusiasm was misplaced. But there was a few. There was a faithful remnant. And Jesus' promise to them is incredible. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they will are worthy. Throughout the book of Revelation, the color white symbols purity, moral purity, and spiritual purity. There was a faithful remnant in Sardis, and that is who Jesus was clinging to. That is who Jesus was promising. That is who Jesus was holding up as the model. Remember, we're made pure by the blood of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We are purified. We are cleansed by what Jesus has done for us, not our good deeds and our good works. Our good deeds and our good works come out of the good work Jesus did for us on the cross and at the resurrection. Jesus says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Big topic, 
Only going to hit it very briefly today. Big issue. Can a person lose their salvation? No, a person cannot lose their salvation. They cannot misplace it. They, they cannot accidentally unfind it. You can't accidentally get unsaved. But there's a lot of scriptures and a lot of warnings and a lot of teachings in scripture that salvation can be revoked. If we renounce Jesus, if we reject the gift, even after once accepting it, the warning of Scripture is that, yes, it is possible. That is nothing to worry about. If you, if you care about Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you're worrying about committing the unforgivable sin, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. If you worry about it, that shows that you haven't committed it. That's, that's a big discussion for another time. Email me. We'll, we'll walk through this. And it's nothing to be, to be fearful of. It's not like you're in salvation, out of salvation, because Jesus is not fickle. We don't go back and forth. It's not a yo-yo. We don't get saved, cuss, then get unsaved. It, it doesn't work like that. Once we're in salvation, we are kept by the power of God. But it does seem possible for those who have once tasted of the heavenly gift to fall away or to walk away. I, I've known people in my own life, I've seen the testimonies of others. Ones who profess to be followers of Jesus, they will say straight to your faith or they will stay looking straight at the camera, I no longer believe Jesus is God's son who died for my sins and rose from the dead. Even though they had made an earlier commitment, if they say that, and that's what they believe in their heart. Remember, Paul says, if you confess Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What if you no longer believe he was raised from the dead? And what if you no longer confess him as Lord? Fortunately, that's for God to figure out. And as I said, it's not a yo-yoing process at all. God's grace is wide, and he is merciful, and, and we are kept by, his, kept by his power. But... If we're going to honor Scripture and be faithful to Scripture, we've got to, be, we've got to be honest about that. Jesus says, I will not blot their name out, uh, which means it was written there. <clears throat> you don't want Jesus to white out your name. I will acknowledge the name of that person before my Father and his angels. When we confess Jesus, Jesus confesses us. And once again, it's not about our power, our strength, our effort, our endeavors. It's about what Jesus has done for us, but it is about acknowledging and remaining, remaining with as much allegiance to Jesus as we can. Let's wrap it up. I'm already over time. Jesus gave the message of the church of Sardis. What is Jesus' message to the church at Oak Park? Busyness, even with good deeds for God, does not equal holiness. We are a very active, vibrant church, but we must never supplant activity and doing things for spiritual, true spiritual vitality of looking to Jesus, living for Jesus, learning from Jesus, growing closer to Jesus, aligning more and more with the teachings of Jesus. Jesus has got to be the focus. And our hearts and minds have to be aligned with him. That is why we serve. That is why we love. That is why we give. We can't get overwhelmed with busyness. We cannot and must not rest on reputation. 
we must always ask, what will we do for God? And always be looking forward. And believe me, we got some plans coming. Third, it is better to be in the minority with passionate devotion to Jesus than to be in the majority without it, even in the church, even in the congregation. There may be some spiritual lethargy among those that, you're, that you know or, or, or those that you, that you hang out with in the church, but don't let that keep you from personal, passionate faith in serving Jesus. And it just may be your spark that ignites the fire congregation-wide for serving Jesus even more and more. And then lastly, this, remembering what we have received in Jesus always leads to renewed repentance. The more we look to the cross, the more we are grateful and humbled by our sin that's been forgiven. The more we look to the resurrection, the more grateful we are, the more encouraged we are, the more strengthened we are, the more hopeful we are, the more emboldened we are for living for Jesus in this world. Remembering always leads to repentance. Repentance is truly the number one job daily of the Christian. Repentance. I want to have Tay and the team Come back up on the stage. In your notes there, there's another line for filling in 